we turn together to the book of Acts, chapter 16. been resisting the urge all week to say, let's look at Philippians, or let's turn to Philippians, because we're going to be looking again at Paul's ministry here in Philippi. Our text this morning is Acts chapter 16, verses 16 through 40. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's Word. The Word of the Lord is completely without error. It is completely sufficient for our faith and life. And it is completely authoritative over us. Acts, chapter 16. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us. As Romans to accept or practice, the crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, What must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced, along with his entire household, that he had believed in God. But when it was day, 
the magistrates sent the police saying, let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned. Men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates and they were afraid when they had heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them. And they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. Thus far the reading of God's Word. Let's pray for His blessing upon it. Heavenly Father, Lord, we ask this morning that You would make Your Word clear to us. That it would take up residence in our heart. That it would change us that it would cause us to grow and to know you better. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, this is a wonderfully familiar passage, isn't it? I was remarking with someone earlier that this part of Philippians 16 is well known. The Philippian jailer. But there's another part to this passage as well. People talk all the time about the Philippian jailer. They don't talk so often about the Philippian slave girl. But both of these individuals, the slave girl and the jailer, are a part of a spectacular and powerful work of God. It's one of the things that I think endears this passage so much to us. That it is spectacular in its scope and in its power. We'll see this morning exactly what that powerful, spectacular event is. But what I would like us to see in this text is the work of the Lord Jesus Christ as He is involved in His minister's ministry and in the lives of those who have come to know Him. And so I'd like us to see three things. First, to see that Jesus delivers. Jesus Christ delivers by the power of His character, person, and work. Secondly, I'd like us to see and be reminded of something that we need to hear all of the time in church. And that is that Jesus saves. This is not something to be taken for granted. This is not something merely for other people. Jesus not only delivers, but Jesus saves. And then finally... As a result of the deliverance He brings and of the salvation that He makes real in our lives, we see that Jesus brings joy. Jesus delivering, saving, and bringing joy. Let's begin then by looking at how Jesus delivers. Look with me, if you would, at the beginning of our passage in verse 16. Jesus delivers and He is going to deliver a girl who is in bondage. Luke begins, as we were going to the place of prayer, you'll recall that Luke has joined, Dr. Luke has joined the 
the group of Paul and Silas and Timothy and perhaps some others, and they're going to the place of prayer. It is very likely one week after they have met with Lydia and she has been converted because the place of prayer would have been occupied each Sabbath day. And so Paul and Silas and their party are doing as was their custom with just a little bit of a change of venue. Typically, they would go to the synagogue each Sabbath day, but here they are going to the place of prayer. And as they go, they are met by a young girl. You can just imagine in your mind's eye what she might look like. She is described here as a slave girl. She is very likely young, perhaps a preteen or teenage girl. It is very likely that she is dressed in squalor. She probably doesn't have shoes to wear. Her hair is probably a rat's nest. She's not exactly the most well-cared-for young lady you've seen. Because after all, she's a slave. She has no value at all except for the value that she can bring to others. If you can imagine businessmen who are concerned with bilking money out of passers-by are not going to exactly tenderly care for this girl. But it's not just that she looks a bit off or poor. I want you to imagine if you were a young person, or perhaps you young people, I want you to imagine if basically your life was a circus. Now, I don't mean going to the circus and watching the the trapeze artists and seeing the elephants and the tigers and the lions. I mean if everywhere you went, you were the circus. You walked down the street and people walked by you like this. And they pointed, and they snickered, and they whispered. Your whole life is a circus. I think it's important before we look at what the Lord will do to remember the reality of problems in the world. You know, sometimes I think we can whitewash the world, and we think in our relative ease and safety and comfort and wealth, We think that the real problems of the world are if we have to wait too long in line. Or if we can only afford a one-week vacation instead of a two-week vacation. But we need to see here that there are real, deep problems in the world. And this slave girl reminds us of that. Because we have real, deep problems, don't we? We have illness. We have broken relationships. We have fears. And so I think that helps us to identify with this young girl who is walking around like a circus that travels. She is in deep bondage. She's actually in what we might call double bondage. She is not free, but she is owned. That's what it means to be a slave. It means she cannot do anything that she wants to. She is like a pencil. Or a car. She is owned property by men who do not care for her. So if you think, kids, that mom and dad don't let you do enough things, I want you to think about the existence here of this young girl. Because there are many like her even today in the Sudan, in Pakistan, in India, who are owned by others. 
They can't get a drink if they want to without permission. And that permission rarely comes. They can't eat what they want. They can't walk where they want. They can't sleep where they want. They can't say what they want. This girl was in bondage. But she's in even greater bondage than that. As horrible as that is, she is in bondage to a spirit, Luke tells us. She has a spirit of divination. Now, this is an accurate translation, but you need to get a bit more of the picture. That sounds sort of scientific. She is in bondage to a spirit, the text says, a Pythian spirit. A Pythian spirit named after, yes, the python, a snake. It is a spirit that is cultic. You see, Apollo was the god of mythology, of prophecy. And he was also the god of snakes. And so he was often represented as being uh, a python, a large and powerful snake. You see, this girl is not just possessed by some vague spirit. It is a cultic, demonic spirit that has her in bondage. And this kind of bondage takes her over. It says that she does fortune telling. And again, we need to give this some color. This kind of fortune telling is not what you might think with uh, Madame Zama or Or Madame Louise sitting at a table with cards. No, this kind of fortune telling is the spirit grips this young girl and puts her into a trance and moves her limbs and she flashes about in a spirit that is ecstatic. This is the kind of bondage that she has. It is a wicked bondage. It is so wicked that the Bible forbids this kind of fortune telling in Deuteronomy 18. It's a wicked kind of bondage that is only for others' gain and money. And we know what Luke thinks of that. You remember the story of Simon, who wanted the power of the Spirit for a few dollars. This is what she is in bondage to. And she follows Paul around, and she does an interesting thing. She tells the truth. She walks around crying, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Perhaps you, like me, wonder, why is she doing this? If she's got a demonic spirit, why is she giving Paul good press? Well, you may recall there was a similar situation when the demonic man followed around our Lord Jesus Christ and declared who he was until Jesus told him to be silent and to come out of the man. Something we need to learn about Satan that we learn here today in this text is that Satan does not always lie. He tells the truth just enough so that he can get you to believe the big lie. He will tell you the truth about your family, how you are tired and overworked, And how you haven't spoken kindly to each other at times. And how your spouse doesn't understand you at times. And then he will leap to the lie that what you need to do is separate from your spouse and break up your family because that's the only way you'll be happy. You see the truth being used for a lie. And you see the demons are knowledgeable about God. And it's not surprising that they are concerned with God the Most High. Because you see, they are not concerned with the gracious Lord Jesus Christ. 
They are not concerned with the God who saves sinners. They are concerned with the God who possesses heaven and earth because that is what they want. That's what Satan calls for. He wants to possess everything just as he possesses this young girl. This is the sorry estate of this young girl. But in God's providence, she comes face to face with the power to deliver. The power to deliver found in the work of Jesus Christ and the ministry of the Apostle Paul. You see, she follows Paul around for several days. And the the text is, is rather humorous, isn't it? It says, And Paul having become greatly annoyed. We get the impression that Paul has just said, I have had it. Get out of her. And I think that's partly true. But it's not just an annoyance that affects his emotions. You see, the word here in the Greek gives us the idea that Paul is being worn down by this young girl. He is being worn out. He is disturbed. He is annoyed because of what she is doing to him and his ministry. She's making it difficult for him to speak the words of Jesus Christ. She's following him very closely, the text says. She's not just following him at a distance. She is following him right on his heels. And she's not just speaking. The word here for cry out means she is yelling, shrieking at the top of her lungs. Have you ever had someone do that to you? I guess there's never been a mom that's had a child follow in her train, shrieking and yelling for something or other. You could get greatly annoyed, can't you? Well, so can the Apostle Paul. He's no Superman. He gets greatly annoyed and he looks at her. His patience wears out. He's perhaps concerned that the mission that he has in Philippi might be put to the side. And he looks and he delivers her from the demon. He looks at this demon, he looks at this spirit, and he says, get out of her now. And he says it in a very specific way. He says, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ. And the spirit left, it says, that very hour. Now, I want you to understand something here about the power to deliver that is found in Jesus Christ. And that is, it is the exact same power that saves a wealthy, wise, personable woman like Lydia. That very exact same grace delivers a slave girl. You see, it really doesn't matter who you are, whether you're rich or poor, free or slave. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ can come down and change your life and who you are. And we see that right here in the text. Have you ever known bondage? Perhaps you feel in bondage to debt. Perhaps you feel in bondage to sin. Perhaps you feel in bondage to your circumstances. This text tells you this morning that Jesus frees from bondage. You need not remain in bondage. You can shake off the shackles of sin. You can shake off the shackles of hate and fear and worry. Because the grace that saves is the grace that delivers. Jesus Christ can deliver from all bondage. But 
Finally, I think it's interesting here, the response that comes to this deliverance. We're not told the response of this young slave girl. I think we have good, uh, we have good means to assume that she became a part of that church at Philippi because, after all, she is bookmarked between two other members of that church, Lydia and the jailer. But the response that comes to others is solely one of selfishness. Now, Luke points this out in a very interesting way. If you look with me at the end of verse 18, it says that the Spirit came out of this girl that very hour. And then the next sentence says, but when her owners saw that their hope of gain, and we might translate that, came out. It's, it's the exact same word. It's actually the exact same form. You see, what happened was the Spirit went away and their gain went away. Because all they were concerned about was their gain. They could have cared less about this young girl And so because of it, they focus only on themselves. And they begin then to respond by bringing up false accusations against Paul and Silas. They bring up really three of them, if you see this. They say, these men, well, well, they're Jews. We all know we don't like Jews. They start with a racial attack. And as if that isn't enough, they say, well, not only are they Jews... That they advocate customs here that, that aren't lawful for us. We're Romans and we don't do these kind of things. Now this would be a, a powerful appeal because you remember that Philippi is made up of Roman citizens, of Roman veteran soldiers. And so not only are they not like us, but they're doing things that we don't do. Then there's actually even a traditional angle here. They say they are disturbing our city. They are advocating customs that are different than what we do. They're doing things different than good Romans do. And so they raise up all of these false accusations. And the mob comes around Paul and Silas. And the magistrates attack them and they beat them. Now, I want you to... Get the picture here. This is not a mild spanking. This is not being shoved around. This is having the clothes ripped off your back and rods of wood with thongs of leather or some other surface tied around them and perhaps even with barbs in them, you being hit repeatedly so that the flesh comes off your back and you're in incredible pain. This is very likely one of the occasions when Paul received 39 lashes. That's how they respond to the deliverance of Jesus. And Paul and Silas are then thrown into prison. We can only imagine what they are planning to do the next day. And so then we get to see our Lord at work, not just in delivering, but in saving. And there are two perspectives here that we see. There's the perspective of Paul and Silas, and there's the perspective of the jailer. First, we see the perspective of Paul and Silas. They are in the midst of tribulation. And they might react in a typical way. How would we respond to tribulations? Well, perhaps we would say, well, you know, this is very unfair. Why is this being done to me? Not just that it is unfair 
judgment, but it's unfair that it's unfair judgment on me. Why didn't that go to somebody else down the road? Why do I have to put up with this? Perhaps they might have been sitting there and said, well, you know, this is just simply too hard. We need to leave Philippi, you know, Lystra and Derby look really good about now. These people here, they don't have any response to the gospel. It's too hard of a work. We should just leave. Maybe even perhaps a budding theological intellect would say, well, you know, we need to leave Philippi. It's just too bad for them that they're not a part of the elect. It's obvious that they're not a part of the elect because God's kingdom is not moving forward swiftly, so we should leave. Perhaps there are others often today who would look and say, you know, this is not what I signed up for. Ministry isn't supposed to be this sad. I need to go someplace where I can be happy, where I can experience a fullness of life, my best life now, where God will shower me with with wealth and health and prosperity. Why am I in this prison? I must not be following God's will. See, all of those are temptations But far better is Paul's response with Silas. It is actually a practical application of Paul's theology. Because the Paul who is in prison is the same Paul who writes this in Romans 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts. You see, this is the man who is in prison. He knows that he has true hope, In the living God, he knows that the suffering that he is under produces character and hope and love. And this is not a temporary passing fad. This is not something that Paul does to lift himself up to keep Silas feeling better. No, we know this because Paul wrote a book of joy to the Philippians. Paul knew where his joy came from. And it wasn't from his circumstances. He was ready for the providence of God. He was ready to rejoice in all tribulation. He knew, or he hoped, and he found out that this would provide an opportunity for the gospel. As we'll see in just a minute. question that I might ask you, you who are going through suffering and tribulation... How will the Lord use your tribulation? What opportunities, what providences will He bring to you in the midst of your suffering? Because you see, suffering does indeed produce character. It does indeed produce hope. And that produces an opportunity to speak of the hope that we have in Christ. For Paul and Silas, it wells up into the most odd, the most unexpected of things. You might expect them to bear through the pain. You might expect them to think about how they will minister to others, how the mission will go on. You might even have expected them to encourage one another with 
Bible verses. What you don't expect them to do in a dark, dreary, vermin-infested prison with their backs open and blood running down is to sing. It's the last thing you would expect. Because far too often, beloved, in our 21st century American Christianity, you can't get American Christians in an air-conditioned room with comfort and ease and hymnals in front of them to sing. I don't mean say the words. I mean to sing. To give glory and praise to God. It is completely unexpected. And Luke reminds us that this is not just for themselves because he he says they begin to sing in verse 25, the prisoners were listening to them. And this word for listening is the word we might say, overhearing. They're straining their ear. They're looking over. They're not participating. This is not a concert. They are overhearing what is being sung. It's very likely that Paul and Silas were singing the Word of God, that they were singing psalms of praise to the living God. And it's very likely that these prisoners were hearing about the One who delivers, the One who saves, the One who brings joy, the One who brings peace. This isn't just happy time singing. So the question then again comes to you and to me, what do others overhear when we speak? What does our speech, our song imply? Do others hear about how great the Lord Jesus is? Do others hear of the reality of the depth of our sorrow, but our trust and hope in God? You see, this is the challenge that those around us would hear the Word of God, the promises of God, the hope of God. Well, that is one perspective on what is going on, but there is another as well. It is the Philippian jailer. Now, you can imagine this man... Perhaps you imagine him in your mind's eye as as a man who is well-dressed with key ring around his belt and a well-shaven man. I want you to imagine a big, burly man with a rough outfit. A man who has seen just about everything. Drunks, murderers, thieves, robbers, assaulters. Villains of every stripe and imagination. If you want to find someone who's jaded, if you want to find someone who thinks there's nothing good in the world, go talk to the Philippian jailer. He's around this all the time. He's seen not only the worst of people, he's seen people at their worst. Because if you're a drunk or a thief or a murderer or a robber, the last place in the world you want to be is in jail. So he's seen it all. And he has been told, strictly speaking, to guard these men. That's why they're put, it says, into the inner prison. Now, you need to know one thing about how jailer etiquette works. If you are a jailer and your prisoner escapes, you do not get fined. You do not get fired. You do not get a pink slip reprimand that your union boss then needs to answer for. You get the punishment of the one who has escaped. So if the punishment is torture, guess what you get? Torture. If the punishment is death, guess what you get? 
death. So now you can understand why, with all of these prisoners in this jail, when the jailer thinks they've escaped, he's wondering to himself, is he going to get one punishment or 30? And he thinks that perhaps the best way to deal with this situation is to take his own life. He pulls out his sword. It's a short sword, about perhaps this big. And you can almost imagine in your mind's eye as he takes a cloak and wraps it around the end of the sword, the handle and the bottom of the hilt, and he's prepared to then fall upon it and kill himself. There's no time for thought here. He's sure he is done in. He is sure that his life is over. He has no hope. Fear has consumed him. But God intervenes. Because Paul and Silas are there and Paul yells, No, we're all here. Don't harm yourself. And you can imagine, what do you mean you're all here? Who said that? I did, said Paul. We're all here. And he walks in and he calls for the light and he sees chains open on the ground and he says, You must be lying to me. You're not chained anymore. The doors are open. Why would you still be here? And Paul says, We haven't left. And this jailer, who has seen his life flash before his eyes, who's seen every form of human misery, who cannot possibly understand why Paul and Silas are not long gone. He looks with longing eyes and quivering lip, and he looks at Paul and he says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now some want to take this question and make it, how can I avoid the Roman chopping block? But I think that's foolish. Because he knows no one is left. So he's not going to face the chopping block. But perhaps I wonder in this small town of Philippi if maybe word got to the jailer of a young girl who had followed these two men around crying out all the time, time after time, day after day, these men know the way of salvation. Do you think he might have heard that? Perhaps he remembered that in all of his fear and he looks to them and he says, what must I do to be saved? This is the crucial question. There is no other question that you will ever face that is more important than that question. I don't care whether you are three here this morning or a hundred and three. This is the question that everything else depends on. What must I do to be saved? And notice what Paul and Silas do not answer. They don't offer him counseling. Well, you see, you really need to have your self-esteem brought together. You really need to clean up your act and shave and be kinder to people and be more gentle. No. You'll notice they also don't give him a theology lecture. There are many here in American Christendom that would start there. Well, let me give you a lecture on biblical theology and redemptive history. Perhaps we should take the time for me to teach you Greek and Hebrew as well. No. They don't attempt to understand his religion. Why don't you describe to me what you believe, Mr. Jailer? Tell me what gods you think about, and that will provide a common point of contact for us. No. They don't tell him what you really need to do is identify with the people of God. You need to take on their boundary markers. No. They don't say, well, what you must do is be baptized. 
You must be baptized. You must sit at the Lord's table. The sacraments will save you. None of these things are what they say. Paul, the most brilliant theological mind, the most pastoral missionary that the New Testament era has ever known, looks and says to this jailer, there's an answer. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Now, do you think you need to be the Apostle Paul to say that? Look up to me here, you who are 8, 9, 10, 6, 5. Can you say, believe in the Lord Jesus? I think you can. You see, the gospel doesn't need lengthy, dusty tomes. It's good to read good, long books that tell us about what the Bible teaches. But at its core, the gospel is merely, believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And that's what I say to you this morning. If you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, if you are lost in fear and hopelessness and doubt, you must believe on Jesus. You must believe that He is the living God, the Son of God Almighty, who has come to earth, become a man, lived a perfect life, and died on the cross that we might be redeemed from our sin and misery. That is the Gospel. That is what we must do. We must abandon everything else. You must only have Jesus. You must take Jesus. And you must do it. You see, Paul doesn't shirk around. He is the God who is sovereign to Paul. But the jailer must still believe. He must exercise faith. God is sovereign, but we must believe that faith That belief is a gift of God, but it must work out in our lives. We must trust and commit. This is what happens. And the jailer is saved, and he is baptized, and his family as well. This is the second of the household baptisms that we are seeing. So those of you that are wondering about who should be baptized, I'll just take a moment and point something out. The jailer was baptized... In verse 33, he and all his family. But look at verse 34. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed. Sometimes little pronouns make a difference. There's no they there in the text. There's a he in the text. Now we don't know exactly the response of every single person in that household, but it is very likely that that household included servants and children and babies. And the jailer sees that Jesus Christ has saved him, and he responds in obedience, because Jesus not only delivers, he not only saves, but finally he brings joy. This jailer is changed almost instantly. The man who had not shown any kindness at all. He had thrown Paul and Silas into the deepest part of the prison. And he had put their limbs in the stocks, our text says. What basically that means is there is a big, huge hunk of wood that is unmovable, that has iron chains fastened into it so that they can't get up or move. They still have the marks from their beating. The jailer hasn't even bothered to dress their wounds. He probably said to himself, well, who cares about them? They're criminals. But now, 
that Jesus has come into his life, that he has come to know the saving power of Christ, now in verse 33, in that same hour, before he even goes home, he washes their wounds. Before he can even get baptized, he tends to them. He shows them kindness. But it's not just kindness, it's also a rejoicing. Look at what happens here. He goes home and he and his family rejoice. Now, I want to remind you again, we have seen this word rejoice when we look together at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8, where it talks about rejoicing with joy unspeakable. This is not a smile. This is not a nod. This is joy that bursts out in song and in yelling. You can imagine... The jailer comes in, he bursts into the door, and he says, you'll never believe what happened to me. What? I met Jesus. Who's Jesus? Well, let me tell you about him. Sit down. No, I can't. Paul, you tell them. You could say it so much better. Joy just flows out of his heart. This is the kind of joy, it's the exact same kind of joy that Abraham had when he saw Jesus' day and rejoiced in it. It's the same kind of joy, beloved, that you who know the Lord Jesus Christ will have. Revelation 19.7 says, Let us rejoice and exalt and give Him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. This is the joy that we have. Kindness, rejoicing, and then finally we see it expressed in love. There's this interesting exchange where the magistrates come and want to set Paul free. And Paul says, "Uh, I don't think so. You're not going to send this out secretly. We're going to have pomp and circumstance going out just like we had coming in. Now you wonder, why is Paul doing this? Is he just trying to get back at the magistrates? Is he trying to prove a point of how valuable he is? I don't think so. What Paul is doing here is showing love for this church because he wants this church to be safe once he leaves. And he wants to literally put the fear of God into these magistrates so that they leave his precious church with Lydia and the girl and the jailer alone. Paul is willing to go out on a limb. Even perhaps they might say, well, if you want to make that big of a stick about it, we won't let you go. For the sake of his church, he was not thinking of himself. Well, there is a spectacular and a powerful thing that happens in this text. But I want to ask you this in conclusion. Is the spectacular thing the earthquake? Is the powerful and spectacular thing the exorcism? No. The powerful and spectacular thing is the work of Jesus Christ in bringing His people to Himself no matter where they come from. And that kind of powerful and spectacular work occurs today. Right here. Right here in Katy. Right here in this church. Do you want to see that kind of work? Have the joy that Paul has. Have the trust that Paul has. Pray that the Lord Jesus would show us His glory in our midst.